one of my favorite sets of fiction books is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And I want to start today by taking you to the world we are first introduced to in one of those books called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here's how the world is described towards the beginning of the story. That the world is described as always winter and never Christmas. This is the world of the main characters, the four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. This is the world they walk into as they magically step from the wardrobe in England, where they've been living, into the magical world of Narnia. And in this story, Narnia has been under the evil rule of the White Witch for a really, really long time. She's kept the world in perpetual winter with little sign of hope. Her rule is absolute. It's always winter and never Christmas. And as the story continues in the, in the opening pages, there's not a lot that offers hope. The Pevensey children, they're betrayed by someone they think is their friend, Mr. Tumnus. Edmund falls under the spell of the White Witch. And then the White Witch, she learns she, where the other children are, and she's out to get them. And so the other children need to flee on a moment's notice for their lives. And so things are desperate in these early pages of the story. And it's at this point when things seem most desperate, when the, when the White Witch's clutches are closing over the Pevensies, when she's closing in on total victory, that we read that the snow begins to melt. And then surprisingly, one character, Father Christmas, who, who had been kept out from Narnia for so long, remember? Always winter, but never Christmas. Father Christmas shows up, and he brings gifts to the children. And then it's this character, Father Christmas, who brings such hope, who speaks hope into the midst of a really desperate situation that the world of Narnia is in. Here's what he says. He says, very simply, he says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is a lion who is the true king of Narnia. He's the only one with the power and the authority to end the evil rule of the white witch. But, but the thing is, Aslan, he hasn't been seen yet. He's not made any appearances, but his presence and his power, they're manifesting themselves everywhere in the melting of the snow and in the arrival of spring. And so the situation seems desperate, but, but now there's hope. Now everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. Why? Because Aslan is on the move. So, so the question I want to ask you early today that we'll come back to later is, is there a situation in your life, maybe a situation you're in the middle of right now that feels desperate, where you need to see a glimmer of hope, where you need to see that God is greater than the darkest of circumstances? Well, hey, Brookside, my name is Tim, one of the pastors here. So great to have you gathering with us at Millard or at Elkhorn, one of our campuses. Guys at Mod 7, we are so glad you are with us. If you're watching online, maybe you're traveling or under the weather, live out of the area. So glad and welcome to you as well. Well, today, like Melissa said earlier, we start the book of Exodus, the, the second book in your Bible. So it's all the way back at the beginning, recording events that really happened that took place well over 3,000 years ago. And as the book of Exodus starts, we find the Hebrew people that God has called into special relationship to himself. We find out that they're in a very desperate situation. That their own situation is always winter, but never Christmas. They've been enslaved for hundreds of years, generation upon generation upon generation, as the book of Exodus starts. And every part of their situation is actually getting from, from bad, is going from bad to worse. 
But even in the midst of this darkest of situations, even when it seems like things can't get any worse, as we read the early chapters of Exodus, we find that God is still at work. He's not absent. He's, act, he's, he's active. Even if it's behind the scenes in those sorts of ways, Aslan is on the move. Exodus tells the story of God's power and his presence. God miraculously delivers his people from slavery, and then, and then he comes to dwell with them in a very special way. If you're reading through Exodus, those two words, the delivery from slavery and then God dwelling with his people, those are two great words to keep in mind that just give us some structure to the book of Exodus. And I'm excited for this series because in this series we'll see that God is greater than our most desperate situations. And really there's two big reasons I'm excited to get into this series. One is very big picture and one is specific to what we're talking about today. And so big picture, I'm excited to get into Exodus because Exodus points us to Jesus. The more we understand Exodus, the more we'll be able to appreciate who Jesus is and everything Jesus has done. The Gospels in the New Testament, those books that tell us so much about who Jesus is, why he came, what he's done for us, they rely heavily on language that you'll read about first in Exodus. And so words or ideas that are all over the New Testament, words or ideas like slavery to sin, the deliverance and rescue, the sacrificial lamb, Passover, God dwelling with his people, all of these words and ideas that are tied so directly to the magnitude of Jesus' work for us, these words and ideas are rooted in the book of Exodus. And so if you're here today, maybe you're just checking Jesus out. I'm so glad you're here because as we dig into Exodus, you'll actually be better equipped and better prepared to understand who Jesus is. Or maybe you're here wondering questions more basic than, than that even. Maybe you're here wondering, does God have anything to do with my life at all? Well, here's the other reason I'm looking forward to getting into Exodus, starting today, then carrying us forward. I've already said that as Exodus starts, God's people are in one of those most desperate of situations. The deck seems stacked against them, and, and they are surely wondering, one of those questions that, that a lot of us can ask at times, where is God in the midst of my darkest of times? These are situations that we can relate to, either because of what you're in the middle of right now, the things you were facing last week, the things you know you'll be facing again this week, or, or there are things that we know we'll be facing again because eventually you get old enough that you realize the question isn't whether suffering comes, the, the question is when and how suffering hits. And so here's the truth that's so important for us to see today. I'll give it to you on the front end. Even in the darkest of times, even when it seems like God isn't there, God is still advancing his plan. God's hiddenness, it doesn't mean his absence. L listen to that again. God's hiddenness, it doesn't mean his absence. There's probably not a week that goes by for me just in what I do as a pastor that I don't encounter someone who's reeling at one level or another from one of these situations that just make life desperate and difficult. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's betrayal by a friend. Maybe it's, it's a health diagnosis that you never thought you'd get, and now you're the one facing cancer. Maybe it's the, the loss of a loved one, either suddenly or slowly, but now that person you've done life with for so long isn't there. You were on my week this week as I was putting 
together my thoughts for what we're going to share about this first week of Exodus. Today you will see key truths about who God is that can anchor you even in the darkest of times. So my goal is that you leave here today with a conviction about who God is, even in the midst of suffering. I want you to leave here with a conviction that God is good, even in the midst of suffering. And then I want that to draw us, that conviction about who God is, I want that to draw us into fresh hope. Because we live in a world that needs hope. So let's be characterized by hope. Let's let our convictions about who God is, let's let that draw us into fresh hope and renewed trust in the person and the purposes of the God that we can serve. So today we're going to walk through a big chunk of Scripture, Exodus 1-1 all the way through 2-10. We'll move through it slowly. I'll provide lots of explanations as we go. But it is so worth reading. And then we're going to land on three big takeaways about, about who God is in the darkest of times. So let's start walking through Exodus. I'll start reading in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. I encourage you to, to go with me in your Bibles there and follow along as we read. So Exodus 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. And now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. One little cool thing about the book of Exodus is that in the Hebrew language in which Exodus was first written, the very first word in the book of Exodus in the Hebrew language is the word and. You see, the author of Exodus, who's, who's Moses, by making the very first word and, he's wanting to make sure that, that the story of Exodus is directly connected with the story of what came before Exodus, what we learn in the book of Genesis. See, Genesis begins by God creating the heavens and the earth, and everything that God created was good. But then pretty quickly, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve, the, the pinnacle of God's good creation, they rebel against their creator. And then suddenly, with their decision, creation is broken, polluted, is shattered by sin that still infects us and affects us and everything around us still today. The good news, though, is that God doesn't abandon his creation. Starting in Genesis 12, we see God initiate a plan of, of rescue, of redemption, through this, through this man that God begins a relationship with, a man named Abraham. And the rest of Genesis then follows the family tree of Abraham through his son Isaac, through his grandson Jacob. And Jacob himself has 12 sons. And at the end of Genesis, we read about these 12 sons of Jacob, these brothers. They, they turn against one of their own. They turn against Joseph. And they sell Joseph into slavery where Joseph ends up in the land of Egypt. And through all sorts of ups and downs, Joseph eventually rises to be the number two authority in the whole land of Egypt. And, and, and there, Joseph su successfully spearheads this, camp this campaign for famine relief in the whole region, eventually even saving his brothers and, and his family, but also the whole land of Egypt from the ravages of famine. So at the end of Genesis, God has used Joseph in tremendous ways, and God is staying faithful to his promises to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. 
That's the story that Exodus wants us to have in mind as we flip from the last page of Genesis to the start of Exodus. And then let me keep reading in verse 8. So, so then with that background in mind, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, this king said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must, we must deal truly with them. They'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so this is just classic insecurity and power hoarding by the ruler of Egypt at the time. He's threatened by this growing, this exponentially growing number of Israelites. So he institutes these measures to oppress and exploit an entire people group. And, and there are actually sources outside of the Bible that help us flesh out the history of this just a little bit. Historians believe that shortly before this, a, a nation from West Asia came in, a nation called the Hyksos people. They came in and, and invaded Egypt and conquered Egypt. And so during this time, nationalism developed among the Egyptians under this Hyksos rule, this intense commitment to their own ethnic people, but also to their own ways of doing things. Eventually, the Egyptians overthrew the Hyksos, but even then, they maintained this strong suspicion of foreigners, this strong desire to see anything outside of them as a potential, as a potential national security threat. So, so this is all just part of the historical batter that goes into what we read about in Exodus chapter 1. Let me keep reading in verse 11. And so they put slave masters, the, the, the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. So, so there's progression here. Things are getting worse and worse for the Israelites over the course of time. Verse 14, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with harsh labor, in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And, and so, so a lot of that last verse or two sounds repetitive, because actually a lot of the same words are used again and again. And that's just the author's way of driving home the point that, that the state, that the, the condition the Israelites were in was one of just sad, exploitative, forced labor. And this went on for hundreds and hundreds of years, probably close to 400 years. 400 years ago, that's when, that's when the, the people first landed at Plymouth Rock, right? So that just gives you a little bit of perspective on how long of a time this was that the Israelites endured this time of, of suffering and oppression. Things were desperate. But then things get worse. Hey, Pharaoh, he moves from slavery and oppression to infanticide, to selectively killing Hebrew male babies. This starts out fairly privately as a way for Pharaoh to preserve his power. Verse 15, the king of Egypt he goes, maybe in some sort of private meeting, we don't know exactly, he goes to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, he says, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Don't overlook the, the fierce courage 
of these two women. In the face of the leader of the world's superpower, they, they practice this bold, courageous civil disobedience. You see, they know that Pharaoh's command, it flatly contradicts the command of God, the, the value of God, the, the value God places on life. And so, so the move of these midwives, as bold as it is, it's really not that complicated. They obey God rather than men. Verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. And so God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And so, so every time Pharaoh tries to bring the hammer down on the Israelites, the hammer bounces back and hits him in the forehead. It's almost like Pharaoh is fighting against a power far, far greater than he knows what he's working with. But then Pharaoh pulls out his final solution. The, the genocide that started out privately, the, the, the decision to kill male Hebrew babies, he goes public with that. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. So now this is publicly proclaimed. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But you must but let every girl live. Imagine being a young Hebrew family. Imagine being any Hebrew family and, and hearing that that public proclamation of Pharaoh against your people. That there's no human authority you could call to, to address this terrible injustice. I mean, imagine the fear of being reported by others. Imagine the fear of, of what would likely happen when soldiers would do sweeps of clusters of homes looking for male Hebrew babies. This probably seems like the final blow to God's people, to the promises that God had made to their descendant, Abraham. Whatever wisp of, of hope maybe had existed up until that point, surely now it's snuffed out. Always winter and never Christmas. Don't miss that as we read through this story, nothing is sugar-coated about the situation the Israelites find themselves in. If you ever, ever wonder whether the Bible speaks to, to the most desperate and despicable situations we can face, things maybe you read about on the headlines or things you can experience yourself personally. If the Bible acknowledges the mess of living in a, of a horribly broken world. What we see here, the Bible does know how messed up the world is. The, the Bible does acknowledge the mess created by sin and the fallout from that. And then we come to chapter 2, where we zoom in on one young Hebrew family caught in the middle of Pharaoh's evil decree. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Uh, spoiler alert, so, so this baby is Moses. We'll see that firsthand in just a minute. And he's one of the most influential characters 
in all of the Old Testament. But before we keep reading in Exodus 2, let's go to a, a, another chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11. Let's see what it says about Moses' parents. Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, verse 23, it says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Don't miss that the reason we can even talk about the story of Moses and everything Moses is going to do, the reason we can talk about the story of Moses is because of the faith of his parents and their own faithful obedience. Moses' parents, they pretty much fade into the background after this, but, but their courageous faith is what makes everything else we're going to study in, the, in Exodus even possible. One pastor says, he says, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do. Maybe it's someone you raise. And as, as we value reaching the next generation as a church family, one of our few core values, let's not miss everything this verse puts in front of us. You see, we can all influence a child's life. Certainly if you're a parent of your, of your kids, this is, the, this is the child or the children you're raising in your own home. But, but grandparents, this is for you. Aunts and uncles, this is for you. All of us here know somebody raising children. This is for you. What difference might your steadfast faith in the Lord, what difference might your faith make in the lives of the next generation coming up behind you? What difference might this make as, as your kids watch your life and listen to your speech? What about, what about for you grandparents, for your grandkids? For you aunts and uncles, what about the way you interact with your nieces and nephews? All of us have a chance to, 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 to influence the lives of kids through our great kids ministry program here. Where we've got so many faithful volunteers helping kids find and follow Jesus in age-appropriate ways. Through their example, through their words. We're always looking for more volunteers. There's lots of ways to do this, to apply this. But, but how might your faith influence the next generation? But as we keep reading in Exodus, we, we learn that Moses' mom, she, she just knows she can't hide him forever. So verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, Moses' mom got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then Moses' sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him, to, to see how the story played out from there. The shores of the Nile would have been a very popular place. A child in a, in a nice protected basket, that, that child would have been found fairly quickly. It's probably similar in lots of ways to, to leaving a, a baby on the steps of a hospital or an orphanage. And then verse 5, we read that Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. Just put yourself in, in, in the history of this situation for a minute. Imagine what Moses' sister must have been feeling. The time probably would have slowed down because she thinks now the worst case scenario has happened. The, the daughter of the man who commanded the murder of Hebrew boys is the one who found her brother. No, no, no. 
Moses' sister is probably thinking, this isn't the way it's supposed to end. This is threat level red, desperate. But then the snow begins to melt. And we see evidence that spring is arriving. Verse 6. So Pharaoh's daughter, she, she gets a basket, she opens it, she sees the baby, he's crying. And then instead of doing what she should have done, instead of doing what she could have done, instead of summoning for the guards or, or, or drowning the baby in the Nile, instead she feels compassion. She feels sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then Moses' sister, in her own display of courageous faith, when, when the enslaved girl goes to the daughter of the Pharaoh who's oppressing your people, Moses' sister asks Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to, to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, nurse him for me, and I'll pay you. Uh, did, did you hear that? Moses' mom is now getting paid to raise her son for the first three or four years of his life. How'd you like that, mom? <laughs> you know, uh, no other comment on that. So, 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 so the, in this chapter and a half, though, we read about centuries, 400 years of time, 400 years of darkness for God's people, of oppression, marginalization, suffering, and, and desperation. And we also see that God is greater than any of these times. Nothing can thwart what God is doing in and for the world. This is where I want to focus on a few takeaways. Uh, on noticing God's activity in the darkest of times. It's in these times when God seems hidden that we'll wonder if he's absent. But, but right here in this darkest of times for the Israelites, we learn three important truths about how God is at work in our own darkest of times. And so before we turn the corner into that, we'll get there in just a second, let me make sure and say something as a pastor. The, the stuff we're going get, to get into, it's not the only thing to keep in front of you as you encounter and deal with and suffer through the, the very real difficult times and sufferings that can come along us. When, when suffering hits, there are dozens of things we probably need. We need others around us. We need the freedom to express the roller coaster of emotions that we'll feel in, in a safe place. Again, there are dozens of things, but, but one of those things that we need is to cling on to who God is in those times. And so these truths that we'll discover, these takeaways we'll leave with, they teach us, they remind us who God is in the darkest of times. These are anchors that we hold on to. When suffering hits you, when suffering hits us. So three big takeaways about God from these dark days of Exodus 1 and 2. One, one takeaway is that we see the presence of God's activity. Now this one maybe catches you a little bit off guard because, because God's activity in Exodus 1 and 2 isn't flashy at all. It's very behind the scenes. In the passage we've been looking at, God only directly shows up in one place and in chapter 1, verse 20. And there even his activity is, is kind of behind the scenes where God just blesses the courage of the midwives. And then they have families and children of their own. 
And so God isn't working in huge shock and awe ways here. Don't worry, that'll come pretty quickly as we keep reading Exodus. But just because God isn't working that way doesn't mean God isn't at work. God is at work as the Israelites multiply even through the oppressive measures of Pharaoh. God is at work blessing the Hebrew midwives with families of their own. God is at work in orchestrating the way too, coincident, way too coincidental to be coincidence events of Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses. This led to the one person who could guarantee the future safety of, of Moses' growth away from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And so God may be hidden at the beginning of Exodus, but God is not absent at the beginning of Exodus. God's activity may be hidden in your own life. Maybe for you it feels like it's been that way for a really, really long time. But let's learn from what we've seen today in Exodus. God's hiddenness, it doesn't mean God's absence. This is where I'm a huge fan of keeping some sort of journal, just where we record what's going on in our days, what God is doing in us and for us. Because then, because then we go back and we reread that journal, maybe weeks later, months later, years later, and our eyes are open to ways God was working in our situations back then that we were blind to. Because one of the truths I hear about, one of the truths I've experienced is, is oftentimes it's easiest to see God's activity through the rearview mirror and not through the windshield. So we see the presence of God's activity. We also see proof of God's goodness. You see, God isn't just active in Exodus 1. He's acting for the good of his people. And so he works good for the midwives, blessing them with families of their own. He works good for Moses' mother. And after Moses' mom has to do the thing that no mother would ever want to do, leave her baby in the Nile and just see where he goes. Imagine doing that as a mom. After doing the thing that no mother ever wants to do, just a few verses later, she's now being paid to raise her own son. So God is active and he's good. We don't want to gloss over the very real suffering that the Israelites were surely experiencing during this time. We would never want to gloss over the very real suffering that you maybe are experiencing right now. But, but in this fallen, broken world where suffering is real, let's not miss the glimmers of light. Let's not miss the proof of God's goodness. Some of you know that a few years back, uh, Carrie's my oldest son, Karsten, was in a pretty serious accident out on uh, the, the farm where Carrie grew up. Karsten was riding in a go-kart with a friend, and they were riding around the farm, and, and they accidentally ran the go-kart full speed into a piece of, Kars uh, into, into a piece of farm equipment. And so Karsten was, was impaled or, or punctured three different places around his abdomen. So, so he raced into the hospital in Kearney, where he was then life-flighted to a hospital in Omaha where they could address his broken ribs, his punctured lung, uh, some internal bleeding, and, and his, his liver had been punctured as well, and it was leaking bile into a system. And, and so any way you looked at it, th that season of our life was a desperate, difficult, tough time. But, but even in the midst of all of that, we saw proofs of God's goodness. 
It just so happened that, that before the accident, a friend's dad was driving out to pick Carson and his friend up and call him in for supper. And so before the accident even happened, our friend was on his way. And that was such a good thing because our friend found Carson right after the accident. So that way, two 10-year-olds didn't have to figure out how to deal with the accident on their own hundreds of yards away from anyone else. I have a sister-in-law in in the medical field who who was able to steer us toward and actually redirect us toward the best place in Omaha for Karsten's care. Carrie and I have family in both places, the Kearney area and Omaha. So wherever we were, we were surrounded by care and support, people who could help out. I had a group of guys who I called late at night on the drive home because only Carrie could could ride in a helicopter. So it was super late at night. I called a couple guys who picked up their phones and said, yeah, we'll pray for you, Tim. So was the situation desperate? 100%. And can we point to proof of God's goodness? 100%. You may be in the middle of a difficult time right now. I I don't want to minimize that. I can't minimize that. But as you respond to and navigate and calibrate everything that is swirling around you right now, don't miss the proof of God's goodness working in you and for you in the situation. So Exodus 1 and 2, it shows us the presence of God's activity. It shows us proof of his goodness. Of his goodness. And then it also shows us the progress of God's plan. You see, God is active, he's good, and he's working things towards the good fulfillment of a great plan. Even with everything we've read in these opening chapters of Exodus, there was never a time when God let go of his steering wheel or lost control of the situation. All the way back in Genesis 15, when God is first making his promises to Abraham, God knows his people are going to go through what they go through in Exodus 1. Just like he knows that they'll be rescued from it. And through everything we've seen today, in his good sovereignty, God has been orchestrating things. Because there is now a Hebrew child being raised with all the benefits of being trained by the best of the best in the presidential palace of the world's superpower. Aslan is on the move. God's plan has been forgotten God's plan hasn't been abandoned. God's plan is advancing. So in these first chapters of Exodus, in the midst of dark and difficult days, we see God's activity, we see his goodness, we see the advance of his plan. And these aren't truths about God that only apply to the second millennium before Jesus. What was true about God then is just as true about God now, in the second millennium after Jesus. I can say this with such confidence because these same truths about God that we read in the suffering of of the Israelites in Exodus, they're the same truths about God we discover when God's own son suffered the darkest days in human history. When he suffered for our sins, when, when he went to the cross for us. Even then in those times when it seemed like God was absent, when it seemed like God's promises were out of reach, Even then when Jesus hung dying on the cross, God was active, God was good, and God was advancing his plan. 
And so our own action steps then are, are trust and hope. And this means we trust in the good progress of God's plan ourselves, and we follow him courageously, even in the face of difficult times. I mean, practically speaking, this means a great place to take our cues in this story is from the midwives from Shifra and Pua, who show their radical trust in God by following him even when it went against the grain of the culture in which they were living. And so where do you need to show that same sort of courageous and faithful obedience to God? And then this idea of trust, it certainly, it certainly points us forward to trust in, in Jesus, who is the ultimate Moses, who delivers us from the worst taskmaster, from slavery to sin. So, so this passage points us this week, whatever it is you're facing, it points us towards trust, and it points us towards hope. You can live with hope, not this fingers crossed, boy, I hope so sort of hope, but, but you can have confident expectation. That's what the Bible means when it says hope. You can have hope knowing that the best is yet to come as we look forward to the final fulfillment of God's plan. And so this means we need to zoom out of our situations, right? We can't zoom all the way out, right? Because the stuff that you're going to face this week is still going to be there this week. But it means we, we every now and then just need to take that half a step back and just remind ourselves of the bigger picture of what God is doing in and for the world, the bigger picture of what he invites us into through faith. You see, for every follower of Jesus, our final hope is in the new heavens, the new earth, when Jesus comes back, makes everything right, sin is defeated, death is defeated, and everything is as it's supposed to be, finally and fully, forever and ever, from that point on. We are invited into the good plan of what Jesus is doing through faith in him, through what he's doing for us, through, through what he's done for us on the cross. So, so that's the zoomed out, half-step-back picture. But, but, but hope, it also changes our lives this week. It changes us because of who our hope is in. You see, our hope isn't in the circumstances that can swirl around us and change in a second. Our hope, our faith, is in Jesus, the one who defeated death for us, who has conquered death, and is now sitting at the right hand of God and invites us into relationship with him. And so, so back to that question I asked at the beginning, what, what desperate area of your life do you need to see a glimpse of hope in? Well, what desperate area of your life do you need to have new or, or renewed trust and hope in Jesus about. Brookside, the, the rule of the white witch has ended. The, the snow is melting. Spring is arriving. Aslan is on the move. God is at work. He's working good. And he's working good things for his plan, for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that even when we can't see it, you're working. Even when we can't feel it, you're working. 
But Father, we thank you that you are working good, that you are working things according to your plan, that in your good sovereignty, the best is yet to come. And so, Jesus, I just pray that through your Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you would give us new, renewed trust and hope, new and renewed faith in what you're doing. And Jesus, I pray that we'd leave, leave here today with this big view of who you are and what that invites us into. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.